Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com There's only one word that matters in business in the early days, and that is the word survival. Whilst you're alive, throw yourself 100% into whatever you do and make the best of this wonderful life that we all lead. Hello and welcome to the Boom Podcast by Virgin Media Business. I'm Nikki Beatty and we're back for another exploration into the world of entrepreneurship. In this series, we're meeting the people who've taken it upon themselves to challenge industries with new ways of thinking. So in each episode, we feature original disruptors, current success stories and champions of the future, sharing tips and insights in conversation. This week, we're looking at one of the most exciting and fast-moving sectors in the entertainment industry, the world of gaming, which is worth, in terms of global revenues, over $100 billion. Wow. So you can think consoles, mobile apps, PC gaming, massive multiplayer online games, and that's only scratching the surface. My first guest on the show today, described as patient zero for the epidemic of UK geek culture in the press, started his journey pre-computer with board games, or, to be more precise, fantasy tabletop role-playing games. Founding Games Workshop in 1975, he was the first to bring Dungeons & Dragons to Europe before launching the Warhammer brand, a phenomenon which laid a blueprint for a career as one of British gaming's most influential figures. He went on to design video games, became president of Eidos Interactive, contributed to big-name titles like Tomb Raider and Hitman, and has since been a top-level investor and chair for many of the country's most exciting game studios. I'm very pleased to welcome Ian Livingston to the show. Hello, how are you? I'm very good. Nice to meet you. Great to have you with us. And it is into the world of neeks we go today. Do you know what a neek is? I think you're about to tell me. It's a cross between a nerd and a geek. Oh, well, I I want the badge. You do? (laughs) Yes. Right, chief neek so far. We should mention, Ian, that you're also the author of the Fighting Fantasy Gamebook series and you've just released a new edition in celebration of the series' 35th anniversary. So am I right to assume that that love of fantasy has never left you? Well, I guess I'm just playful by nature and games has just been the medium I was enjoyed playing and, of course, I was lucky enough to make a career out of them. So I've been kind of living the dream for just over 40 years. Quite literally the dream. Um, Well, I'm also interested to hear more and we'll do that shortly. But um, let me introduce our second guest on the show, this time a brilliant female founder who's taken her love of gaming into a slightly different direction to use as a force for good. Founding her company Playmob in 2011, after a 10-year background in the industry, Jude Oa has carved the world's first platform that connects game mechanics to social good. As a profit-plus-purpose business, Playmob's aim is to raise $1 billion for good causes through play. Jude, welcome to the show and explain more. 
Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, so we uh, basically leverage the power of gaming. So there's 2.2 billion people playing games on the planet. We spend about 16 billion hours per week playing, so we're turning this into a force for good. So how does it actually work? So it works in two ways. Either um, we work with brands and NGOs, and we do campaigns which are raising awareness of causes within existing games. So imagine you're playing Angry Birds, and then you play a level which is about the oceans. And for every action that you take in the oceans level, you're making real-world impact at the same time. So players are learning and doing good at the same time. Now, for full disclosure, we should mention that, Ian, you are chairman at Playmob, and we'll get to that in a moment. Jude, you're not short on accolades either. You were named a winner at the Talent Unleashed Awards in 2014, and you're a BAFTA Games judge. That's quite something as well, because before BAFTA were film and television, the very fact that we have a gaming category means that the entertainment world recognises this hugely. Yeah, massively. I mean, games is now bigger than film and music. so it Combined? Has to be combined, yeah. yeah. That's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? So do you feel that right now we are in a golden age in the UK in terms of a game industry? Well, we've always been great at making games. As you know, I started Games Workshop in 1975 with an old school friend, Steve Jackson, and we put out a newsletter called Owl and Weasel. And one of the recipients of that was Gary Gygax, who just invented Dungeons & Dragons in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Shall we just for what a split second? There might be people listening who don't know what Dungeons & Dragons is. Okay. Dungeons & Dragons is a role-playing game. It's a box, and inside that box are three rule books in which one person designs a labyrinth of rooms and passageways and populates them with monsters and treasure. And the other players, as character types, heroes, wizards, uh, magic users, go on these fantastic journeys of the mind through conversation. So the dungeon master relates what they can see, and then they act in character what they're going to do. So you're walking down a 20-foot passageway, and you come to a doorway with a keep-out sign written in blood on it. If you look further down the corridor, there's a green glow of a skeleton with a sword in his hand. What do you want to do? So When I was at school, Ian, um, my friend Jamie Freeth wouldn't let me come over to his house and play Dungeons & Dragons because it was for the boys. My, no. how time... Yes, I'm serious. And if they're all listening, they know exactly who they are. <laughs> so that was then... Um, you just said that uh, we have a history of, yeah. of great games. What I'm trying to say is that D&D was kind of the catalyst for the industry. And then also in the UK, um, unusually for the world, we had the BBC Micro as a cornerstone of computing in schools and everyone had a Sinclair Spectrum in their homes, an affordable, programmable computer. And because we're a naturally creative nation, look at our film, our fashion, our music, our publishing, our architecture and, of course, our games... Um, put technology and creativity together, hey presto, video games. And so we got off to a flying start in the, in the 1980s of making content that resonates with the whole world. And so you know, it's no surprise that, that the UK became a world leader in video games. And yet a lot of people don't know. Most people think games are developed in, in the United States or, or in Japan. Japan. Yeah. And they don't see the UK. And yet today there are over 2,000 game studios in the UK. And we've created some of the best that the world has ever seen on console games, PC games, and, of course, mobile. So uh, in terms of where you stand in the gaming world right now, I mean, do you think this is a golden time, or do you relate to what Ian said, that it always has been in the UK? No, I think Ian's right. You know, it always has been. I think um, with more access to 
technology well gaming being digital and more access to technology more access to wi-fi globally it's just getting bigger and bigger um so right now there's something like over two billion smartphones in the world um and by 2020 it'll be six billion and gaming is the, the the biggest category in in the app store so naturally there'll be more people playing games so it's it's, it's growing and growing but it, it's always been there and how did you scale your business then, Ian, from opening as... Because it was mail order initially, wasn't it? Yeah, we started off in a flat in Shepherd's Bush and uh, we ended up opening our own shops because we couldn't get other people to stock it. And uh, we were surprised and delighted that there was a huge queue outside when we opened our first retail store. And so we built up more Games Workshop stores. And then, of course, we were distributing Dungeons & Dragons. But at the end of a three-year period, we had to make a decision whether to merge with TSR, who owned Dungeons & Dragons, or go our, our own way. And Steve and I, being this kind of young, independent Brit, said no to the merge opportunity, but suddenly we needed something to replace D&D, and that's how Warhammer came about. And when, one top tip I give to people starting their own business is make sure you own, you own your own intellectual property, because that's how you build real value, by owning your own content. Did you know that at the time then, or was it just a gut reaction? Did you have the business acumen at that I point? I did not have the business acumen. <laughs> we were kind of miss, <laughs> making it up as we went along. So we opened shops, we started a, a magazine, White Dwarf, to promote our hobby because nobody else would write about it. We started a factory called Citadel Miniatures, so people could have little models to represent themselves in the games. And the whole IP ownership came as a result of nobody else being able to supply this stuff. And I carried that from, from the analogue world into writing books, Finding Fancy Game Books was our own IP. And then later with IDOS, you know, one of the main things was to have original IP. So games like Tomb Raider, Hitman, Just Cause, Championship Manager were all uh, IP owned by the company. So you sold part of that company in 1991, didn't you? I sold out of Workshop in 1991. And then I got into video games um, in 92, joining the board of Domark, which is quite a small UK developer publisher. I'd invested them in 1984 because I wrote their first game for them in the 84 because my books were at number one, two and three in the bestsellers charts and they came to me as a startup saying, would I design their game? And it was called Eureka. We had it programmed in Hungary for secrecy because it was a £25,000 prize attached to the first person who'd figure it out, phone a number, which was on an answer machine in a solicitor's office somewhere in London. That's amazing. Um, in my intro, I used a quote from The Spectator which described you quite niftily as patient zero for the epidemic of UK geek culture. Um, it makes me laugh even now. You must be proud to be a number one geek or neek, as I would refer yeah, well, to you. Yeah, I'm totally right. I wear my anorak with, pr- with pride and you know, I've got over a thousand board games at home and yeah, I just love... Not just the the fact that it's a business, I just love the social part of games. And I think games are often... Um, castigated for society's ills and yet I think games enable a lot of learning to go on. If you part your prejudice against one or two titles and think cognitively what's happening when you're playing a game you have to problem solve you can't get through a game without solving problems Mm -hmm. it's impossible. You learn intuitively, you learn in a safe environment you can fail in a safe environment, in fact you're encouraged to start again it's not a kind of binary you win or lose everyone can be a winner ultimately in a game Games like Minecraft enable creativity. I mean, the child's building is wonderful 3D architectural worlds and sharing with their friends. Which is so interesting, the whole, the Minecraft thing. And if you think of a YouTuber like Dan TDM, who posts Minecraft videos a couple of times a day, 
He has millions of fans all over the world because it's not just the children who are involved in this, but the parents actually watch their child learning and they become part of that process Well, they're as learning well. in a multidisciplinary way mm. and they're learning about you know, design. I mean, who wouldn't want to become an architect after playing Minecraft? And games simulate real life. They give context to learning it because a game like Rollercoast Tycoon, where you're building a theme park, you understand the physics of the rides you build, you understand the economy when you set the prices, the staffing levels, and if you do it right, the virtual customers will come. If you don't, you're not punished for getting it wrong. You tweak the parameters until you get it right. So that's that, that kind of contextual learning, I think, is so relevant today and is excluded from the classroom. So, I mean, we use the word geek there, but, I mean, basically, we are really past that sort of profiling. I mean, it's amusing to use the word, but gaming is omnipresent yeah. and and when the you geek shall inherit the earth well they so have haven't they <laughs> jude um the fact that everyone i think is connected to games or can be today mm -hmm. and every child wants to use their parents mobile from the moment they can use their finger to swipe how did you fall in love with gaming just take us back to where your passion lay so i got involved in gaming from a really early age so at home, you know, Ian's mentioned Spectrum. So we had a Spectrum at home. We had a Commodore 64. Um, and playing games was real family time. And we, we played board games as a family. What did you play? Oh, we used to play Monopoly, Trivial Pursuit. I love Trivial Pursuit. Um, I think we had like hundreds of games at home. But digitally, we used to play as a family as well. So, you know, I've got really fond memories of, you know, Friday night being sat around kind of waiting for the, the game to load on our, on our Spectrum. Yeah. Um, so and it was really social as well. So ever since then, I've always loved gaming. And, you know, when I became a teenager and the Sega came out, Sega Mega Drive, um, big fan of Sonic. <laughs> you know, I just it kind of grew with me. Um, and then it was when I was at university, I met two guys who were setting up a startup and the startup was about uh, developing games for corporate training and education. Um, so when I saw what these guys were doing, they, they were basically building a company from our university, like a spin-out. Um, so I got involved. Um, so I was the third person to join their company. And ever since then, it was the you know looking at gaming from a different angle. So gaming is great for entertainment, but also I'm interested in gaming from you know the uh, what more it can be to educate us and, and so, teach. So at what point did you think right? I can start a company and do it, use it for a force for good. Was Playmob designed for that in the first place? Yeah, but that's Playmob's purpose. So I'd spent ten years um, working on games for education and training. So working with corporates, working with um, schools, with educational institutions, and it was really it was in two thousand and ten when um, the Haiti earthquake happened, and Zynga, who made Farmville, which is popular on Facebook they launched a campaign to raise money for the Haiti earthquake. And what they did was on your virtual farm, you can buy a virtual seed. Yeah. Um, and you can... Uh, I did it. Did you? Yeah. Oh, nice. With all my little godchildren. Oh, amazing. Um, so, yeah, I participated in that campaign. I thought, this is an amazing idea. Rather than creating games from scratch for good, why don't we tap into what exists already and create stories within existing games? Um, the thing that bothered me, though, was I, I wanted to see what impact I was having as a player. So were we building schools, providing meals? I think mm. that would have made me more connected to the cause. And so that was the reason for setting up Playmob, of thinking, you know, imagine all the games that we can connect to and then tell the story of the good that we can do. So what what does Playmob mean as a, as a title for the company, as a name for the company? So when we came up with the name, um, we were kind of throwing about some ideas and said, oh, we're, all, we're like a, you know, it's like, 
Robin Hood. We're like play, uh, like the play mafia. <laughs> and then we thought, well, that's probably not the right way to pitch us. Um, so then play, that's where Play Mob came in. So we're like this kind of underground mob doing good through gaming. And so how have you actually designed the way that you... Uh, you just said that initially you couldn't, as a user, see where the good was being done. So mm. what? how did you start planning that process? So we're applying as social purpose to any game. Um, so we work in the likes of um, Angry Birds or Cut the Rope, you know, titles that people recognise already. Give us some really good examples. Oh, God, there's loads. So there's a, a multiplayer game called RuneScape, um, which we did a really interesting campaign about the plight of the rhino. And in that campaign, players were asked a daily question um, the question related back to rhinos and after, once they got four questions right, they got the black rhino. If they got seven questions right, they got a white rhino. And at the end of the two-week campaign, they would have uh, pet rhinos, which you, um, you you couldn't kill within the game. They stayed with you forever. Um, but once one player got a rhino, all the other players wanted rhinos. Um, but I think the interesting thing about this campaign was at the end of the two weeks, we thought, you know, once players have their rhinos, they're probably, you know, the talk of rhinos is probably going to decline. Whereas it started to, uh, it kept on increasing to the point where players were like, we want to do more, what can we do? So we did a, an online Ask Me Anything where conservationists came online and players over a two hour period could ask them questions about, um, about the rhino uh, and what they can do to help. And then the players also organised a, a rhino party. So... <laughs> So this, but this is all lovely, and it creates awareness. But where does the actual money come in? How does the how do you get the money? So there's there's two ways. Um, we can set up a, a mechanic within the game where a player can purchase an item, and a percentage goes back to the cause. Or if it's if the campaign is sponsored by a brand, then we take a percentage of that revenue, the the media spend, and we put that back into a donation for the cause. And how did you discover that these were the most effective ways of doing it? Was there trial and error? Did you ever? Yeah, yeah tell us <laughs> tell us how that went. Um, it's always interesting yeah. to hear how people have devised something and it's gone completely in a different direction mm. and then you have to recalibrate. Yeah, so we, we, we started off mainly on, on the in-app purchase model. So players can buy an item in a game and a percentage would go to a good cause. But, you know, the learnings there were trying to find the right match between what a player, what a, a certain demographic of players would want to support and yeah, what what they got behind. And we had to learn at the beginning as well. You know, we, we were getting a lot of interest from some of the smaller studios, but there wasn't enough of an audience to, to make a meaningful impact. Um, but it's something we're looking at right now. What can we do collectively with all those smaller studios? Um, but over time as well, you know, because we're most of us are from um, gaming backgrounds, we didn't really understand the, the value of the advertising, the, the amount of people that we were getting in front of, which is the interesting piece for the brands. The brands want to get in front of a gaming audience and we give them a really nice way to do it, which isn't just cold, hard advertising. It's more about promoting their social purpose. Um, so that's something that's evolved over time. Ian, what made you want to be involved with Playmob? What did you see in this? Was it that it had a great social well, conscience? Did you see that there was money to be made, that there was a great business that you could help develop? What was it? Well, I, I like the proposition. I like Jude, and I usually invest in people. Mm. Um, I also want a, a varied portfolio, and this was the the one bit of a, the, my portfolio was doing stuff for good. The rest of mine was purely commercial, but Again, differentiated some in console like Sumo Digital, mobile like Playdemic and others. So I tried to have non-competing categories. And you know, Jude's doing a fantastic job in in, in monetizing content for great causes. And 
That ticked quite a few boxes for me. And and how much have you been involved in steering the company? Well, um, I'm there as a wise old man, hopefully, for whenever she needs it. Uh, Sagacious. <laughs> uh, I, in a, as I a mean, fantasy she, she character, She doesn't really you? need any help. She knows more about the business than I do. I'm there as a chair, as a, as a guide and, and advising on strategy and how to take the company forward. I get more involved with my games companies because I'm a content guy at the end of the day. I love design, so I, I get kind of put my finger in everybody else's pie these days. If you were to design the fantasy characters that you would both be then, if you're the sagacious elderly character, what would you look like? Oh, probably some grisly old, um, grisly White old beard? wizard. White beard? Well, I hope not. Probably no? Grey beard. Grey beard. But, but hopefully not bald either. <laughs> <laughs> Long-haired, grey beard. Yeah. Sounding like a fantasy wizard. What yeah. about Jude? How would what would Jude be like? Well, she's, clearly she's an elven princess. Thank <laughs> you. Know. Now, everybody listening, we ought to do a little graphic on the photo that we put up on the website for this, shouldn't we? <laughs> so, back to the business proposition. Yeah. I, I mean, how important is teamwork when you when you when you take uh, you know, an interest in a company like Playmob? Well, what I look for is, as I said, the people. Um, the technology, what do you look for in the people? Intellectual. Well, that they're a. I've got a very insightful and experienced leader, and that they're able to execute on their ideas, and they work well with other people. They have to have empathy with their team. Mm. I hate it when people are disliked by their their team. So you've got to see what the team spirit is, what the mojo is in that company, and then see what you know. Again, the competitive market. Is there anything else? Anybody else doing the same thing in their marketplace? And is it uh, a worthwhile investment? So in terms of seeing a team and wanting to get the best out of them and maybe develop those very traits that you want to see in them, what, I mean, what are your tips for people listening? Well, if you're starting off a new company, um, make sure you re retain ownership of your intellectual properties as long as you can. So often the case where it's hard to get access to finance, especially for games, because people don't understand intangible assets, they don't have security, they don't understand digital IP, and often content creators have to trade away their IP for project finance, so they end up being a work for hire. Mm. So I think try and help them get up the value chain of ownership, because if you own your own IP, you don't get just the revenue from publishing your IP, you get it from incremental revenues from licensing and merchandising, and you build much more multiple, but much higher multiple in your business than you do than if you were just simply working for somebody else. So... Top tips are usually um, just do it, basically, for a game. You can have an idea for a game, get it out there. It might not be a success, but don't see that as a problem. You know, success is part of the, of the journey, but you take the or learnings from that and, and, and go again until you do finally hit the winner. And but that's to, to... provided, presumably, Ian, you can, if you have a failure, pick yourself up and carry on. You can. We can remember Angry Birds, that Jude referred to later, was not... Rovio's first game was their 51st game. Right. And uh, a company I've been associated with until we sold recently was a company called Playdemic in Manchester. They'd been doing okay for five or six years, and but it wasn't easy to attract finance. And they were a, you know, a mobile games publisher and suddenly had this game called Golf Clash that launched at the beginning of the year. And it'll generate you know north of 100 million this year. And this is from 40 people. So the contribution 
by each employee of 40 to a revenue of, say, 660 million is 4 million per employee. So the, the scale that you can get out of games is phenomenal, and people don't understand that. And it's impossible sometimes for people to get access to finance. Skills is another area you've got to look at. We need a skilled workforce. So, again, access to skills beyond the UK is important for UK studios. And, it, you know, if you if there are people listening who suddenly gone, what, four million for each member of that company? I want to get in on this. Yeah. Well, you should. Because it's never <laughs> been, as you say, this is the second golden age of games. Because yeah. back in the analog days, you had to have capital because you had to build physical goods, physical media, put them on trucks, get them into retail, and you've got that whole distribution chain which mm. sucked up a lot of working capital. But in the digital space, any person can work from home or they can bootstrap a, a, an idea and get to market because they can self-publish on the app stores. They can reach a global audience through high-speed broadband and monetize a global audience. And therefore, yeah, there's a huge opportunity there. Now, again, it's highly competitive and there's going to be, you know, for every Angry Birds, there's going to be 10,000 dead birds out there. But there's still a way to do it if you, if you feel so minded. Jude, talking about monetizing, we've touched on on how you get the big studios involved, hopefully. And that seems to be, if you're going to collaborate, you need the big hit games if you're going to be successful. But you're then giving to a good cause, uh-huh. or, or the players are. Where do you make your money? So there's, there's two ways we make our money. Um, so we have two models, essentially. One is the in-app purchase model, where we are fundraising so um, players buy the item, a percentage of money goes to charity. Uh, we earn a small fee from, it's a transaction fee for, for doing the tracking and reporting and showing players the impact that they made. Um, now on the other model, which is more of an advertising model, um, we do a revenue share with the developers. So we get paid by a brand um, to run a campaign. Um, a percentage of money goes to creating the content, to the media, to the charity, and then we earn a fee from that too. And do you come up with those causes? Is it a huge team of you? How many of you are there looking at that world? Yeah, so there's only 14 of us. We're quite small. Um, so the way that we work is, you know, the game developers understand their games the best and their audiences. We work with them on the cause side to make sure we get the right message across. Uh, and then we work with the causes as well to make sure that if there's any um, particular content that we need to be, um, you know, very accurate on, which is most of the time, um, <laughs> then we've got to, um, we work with their subject matter experts. So in one example where we, we did a campaign around cyberbullying in a game called High, High School Story, and we did this with CyberSmile. Cy- CyberSmile were the experts. They understand the world of cyberbullying mm. and what teenagers should do uh, in order to tackle it and where they should go to get help. So we created a whole storyline within High School Story that players can play out and learn about the, the the different actions that they can take if they if they're being cyberbullied or their friends being cyberbullied, and then we help to point them in the right direction. And we also raise money at the same time for for CyberSmile. You're listening to the Boom Podcast from Virgin Media Business, and in today's episode, we're focusing in on the industry of gaming. With Jude Owa in the studio today, and via Playmob Story, we've been discussing some of the unexpected ways that gaming can be used as a force for good, whether that's raising awareness for charities, tackling cybercrime or cyberbullying, or inspiring donations. But looking to the future, let's take another diversion. What happens when you cross technology like virtual reality and gaming with healthcare, for instance? We spoke to Isabel van der Kere, founder of Immersive Rehab, to find out more. 
I'm Isabel. I'm the founder and CEO of Immersive Rehab. And the reason basically why I got into gaming and VR and using it for healthcare is a personal experience that I had myself. So I'm a biomedical engineer from training. I've worked a lot on the boundaries of healthcare and technology throughout my career. But also in 2010, I had a work accident that left me immobile for a very long time. And so I had to go through a long rehab, physical rehab period to get back to the state in which I am today. Often going through that rehab period left me frustrated and demotivated in the way rehab was being done, isolated as well. And so I wanted to change that for people in the future going through a similar stage or, or a period. And, and I've, I mean, everybody knows that when doing rehab, a lot of people just don't do their exercises. It's very boring often as well. So I, as an engineer then myself, I wanted to use technology to change that. And I've always been very interested in kind of gaming and, and play. And VR again came on the market again about two years ago, really, or was more exposed to the public. And so I got into that, went to lots of events and basically linked it to using it for physical rehab and in particular for neuro rehabilitation. So I founded Immersive Rehab in September 2016. We're still at MVP stage and currently looking to do clinical trials as well. So the games that we've developed, um, so there are two aspects to the game. So one obviously is to improve the physical state and health of a person going through physical rehab. So that is in, to increase their mobility. At the moment, we focus on upper limb mobility, in particular for stroke and spinal cord injury patients, where it is still very limited, the mobility gain that they have when they leave the hospital after the rehab that they're going through, which is on average about 15%, uh, which is very limited, too limited to really function fully. So we aim to increase that uh, by using this, these games. And so there are two games. One is a tower building game. So they need to build towers up to a certain height within a certain time. So we give them a challenge rather than asking them, let's do 20 times this movement, let's do 20 times that movement without engaging with any objects. We actually give them a challenge. They mix up all the movements. We don't give them in a specific, uh, but because of the, the challenge, people stay motivated, they stay engaged. And I've worked with patients that normally after one minute, they tune out. And within the game, they actually stayed in for 10 minutes and they wanted to do it over and over again. They were very focused. And there's always this, cognitive aspect as well into it so that we want to work on the concentration of people as well next to keeping them and that's with via engagement and so game file engagement is very crucial so you need to make the game as such that people really stay engaged within within the exercises that they need to be doing and because of the high level of immersion in vr it's a very nice medium to actually uh, try to achieve that so the big mission, the big vision, obviously, for immersive rehab is to get it into hospitals, rehab clinics, uh, but also the long-term vision is to really get it into people's homes as well. So to really let people take charge of their own rehab when they leave the hospital and continue that rehab at home. Also, some people, I've been in contact with people that cannot leave their homes because, of, for example, infection risk or just transport issues. So being able to give them an option that they can do in their homes 
in a very easy way and being followed then by the physios or by their physicians, doctors, family members, for example, remotely. Um, that is kind of the big vision. So that's basically w- what stage we are at now is uh, the fundraising stage. Yeah. Everybody that wants to kind of learn more about immersive rehab, our journey and the stage we're at, you can go to immersiverehab.com or follow us on Twitter. It's at Immersive Rehab. Facebook is similar. Please engage and I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you there to Isabel van der Kiri of Immersive Rehab. And what an incredible business idea. Who would have thought that one of the next big steps in healthcare and physical rehab would be virtual reality gaming? Good luck to Isabel, and I do hope she gets the backing she needs to take that to the next level. I love the fact that we featured really positive stories today about how gaming can be used as a force for good in society, because you referenced it earlier, Ian, gaming often gets a really bad rap. It's accused of causing violent reactions in people, Mm. of encouraging misogyny, or whatever it may be. There are are lots of accusations. Well, accusations they are, but they remain as accusations because there's mm. no, no scientific f- hard evidence, evidence anywhere that supports the fact that games are addictive or cause violence. Um, it just does not exist. I mean, if you want to go out and play golf every day, is that yeah. an addiction? You enjoy doing it. And let's talk about Grand Theft Auto. Bit, yeah, well, that's a little bit gentler than Grand Theft Auto. GTA Five. it generated a billion dollars in less than a week. This is the largest entertainment franchise in any medium. Mm. It's a fantastic bringing together of science and the arts. It's a great British success story, and it's often castigated as being a bad thing. I would say it's not a great thing. A, it's 18-rated. It shouldn't be played by children. Mm-hmm. We don't talk in the same sense about film that are 18-rated, yet we always pick out one or two games because those are the only ones that people have heard of in some areas of the press. I need to get you on some of the talk shows. And that... they don't talk about the 98% of content which is perfectly family friendly there was a horizon show last year and they were saying that um why do people think games don't actually make you think more or Mm. use your brain more so they got some older people and they did an mri scan on their brains to measure their cognitive activity and then they gave them a tablet full of games to go and play for a month and came back and the cognitive activity had been raised significantly because of all the puzzle solving, saying, because you're losing this brain. And they were saying, well, maybe we should give old people a tablet to play on rather than tablets to swallow for their health. <laughs> what a brilliant line. It might be a cure for Alzheimer's. Use it or lose it. Mm. And also the way that games are used for like scientific research. For you know, There's multiplayer games that have been used to look at um, you know, what happens if a, an epidemic, um, if a virus spreads what do players do in that instance and we're also using games for things like um, protein folding to find um, solutions to uh, or cures for cancer so the way games could be used in these other ways is, is, is really fascinating and the way games make you feel as well so we've had players and parents get in touch with us um, one player in particular this boy who was 14 and um, he started off the email he said you know I hate my life and then he's, <laughs> he said, but he said, um, the only thing I know how to do is play computer games. He said, I don't have money, but I know that when I play one of your campaigns, I'm making a difference in the real world. And that makes me feel like I'm a better person. Um, and I've heard that quite a few times now. And even parents getting in touch through the cyberbullying campaign to say thank you for saving our child's life. 
because, you know, we help them with, you know, really, it's tangential learning. You know, they're learning in an, in an environment that is on their terms, but we're planting a seed of information that they can go and find out more information outside of the game, but we're doing that at scale. Yeah, I mean, games are empowering because mm. you're taking control. That is empowering. I mean, getting back to the game books, Final Fantasy game books, he's mm. right back in, in the 80s, got a whole generation of children reading because they made choices. They had to make the choices where they're going to go next in the adventure. And yet, because it was called a game book, the establishment thought they were trivial at best and probably harmful. Uh, the Evangelical Alliance published an eight-page warning guide saying, because you're interacting with ghouls and demons, you're bound to get possessed by the devil. <laughs> a, a local uh, a, a woman in deepest suburbia phoned her local radio station and said that having read one of my books, her, her son levitated. So the kids were thinking, £1.50, I can fly, I'll have some of that. <laughs> and there were petitions wanting them banned. Oh, uh, some my people goodness. wanted them burnt. Because the children were actually reading it, and mm. that should be seen as a good thing. Because it, but it had the word game in it, and that was a problem. You're listening to the Voom podcast from Virgin Media Business, the ultra-fast fibre broadband company. And I just wanted to take a minute to remind you that Voom is on tour. The Voom team are travelling around the country to host a range of workshops, one-on-one business advice sessions and a series of pitching competitions. They're completely free to attend and they're open to anyone. And if you win in one of our local pitching competitions, you might need to clear a date in your diary for dinner with Richard Branson. Plus... £5,000 in cash. This week, we're in Birmingham, followed by Cardiff on October the 5th. On October the 19th, we're in Winchester, Glasgow, November the 2nd, Dundee, November the 9th, and Edinburgh on January the 26th, 2018. To enter or find out more, head to virginmediabusiness.co.uk slash voom. Right now, you're listening to the Voom podcast, and I'm here with Ian Livingston and Jude Ower. What do you think, Ian, makes a hit game? I mean, you've worked on monumental games. I mentioned Tomb Raider earlier, and there are other huge games yeah. that you've been part of. What is it? It's a bit like saying, well, how do you create a hit record? It's not that simple. No Clearly, formula. The, well, there are some things you have to consider. Complexity, you have to have that kind of zen flow through a game so it's not too easy and not too difficult, i.e. not think, oh, that's rubbish, it's too easy, or it's too difficult, I'll just give up on it. Secondly, it's got to have a kind of unique proposition. It has, can't be another Me Too game. And and then you have to have characters that resonate with people, a good storyline. I mean, there's lots of things, technology, and a, and a good storyline is more and more important in, in games these days. But So for people listening, and you've just said, teachers, educators, all of you, get involved. This is an amazing creative industry. Let's assume there's a self-starter listening who's inspired by our conversation, a games designer, a developer. Is it possible in this day and age to start a small startup and be successful? Or is it about the huge players? If you think about um, where Minecraft came from, Notch, the founder, you know, he was a kind of bedroom developer who grew Minecraft over the years to, to what it is now. So you, you can start from anywhere. Like Ian said, you, know, you can start from home. You've got access to all the tools, um, the internet. Anyone can start. And uh, where do you both think that the industry will be in 20 years? Look into your gaming crystal ball, Ian. Um, I absolutely no idea, to be frank, because it's, it, the games industry is transformed by technology constantly. Mm. And 
it wasn't that long ago when mobile phones were around and smartphones became a huge platform for games. So half a billion game apps now. Um, Facebook wasn't a platform. That became a huge platform for games. Now we've got AR, VR, mixed reality. We've got immersive games coming. The game's becoming a spectator sport. People watch people playing games on YouTube, then they'll go to live tournaments. Oh, God, I know. Uh, the Ali Pali or where it, no, was it, they, they have that, was it Masters of Gaming? So, so why would you want to watch other people playing games? Why would you want, why you want to watch any sport? Because but I don't see it as a sport. How is it a sport? Well, it's a, it's, it's a virtual sport. People are watching tournaments on big screens. You can get tens of thousands of people watching a sport, and these guys and girls are earning a lot of money playing games. And that's it's amazing, that's isn't it? That's the 21st century. Yeah. It's, it, it's the entertainment of today. Jude, perhaps you can see 20 mm. years ahead in terms of the force for good that gaming or platforms will will you know move forward to mm. can you see something in the future yeah definitely i mean like you know like Ian, i think you know you can't tell where the technology is going to take us because we're constantly innovating but um i think a big thing for social impact will be around virtual reality and actually putting people into experiences where they become a lot more emotionally connected to the cause oh my god um, but being able to donate um and make an impact straight away so um, there's companies already exploring this space. You know, VR for Good is, is 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 a big thing, and there's big companies getting behind funding VR for Good. Um, but imagine you're in a and you, you put on your VR headset and you're walking through um, an African village and you see a school that needs built or water wells that are dry, and just to be able to click on them and donate and you know feel more emotionally connected to the cause because with causes, you know, we're we're driven to help when we see the whites of people's eyes or when we've been personally affected by something. And VR is so immersive that we can put people in those situations. Um, so I think, I mean, that, that's a little while off, um, you know. I know, but that's not, I, I can already feel that. The moment you said it, I got slight goosebumps. That would be a great way of, of really making people understand the world in so many ways, wouldn't exactly. it? And I think also esports is a big one for causes. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, we, we run marathons and raise money for... Um, for for charities and um, I think we'll see more esports uh, give back at the same time so imagine like teams competing and raising money um, together so I think that's going to happen sooner rather than later So we're nearly uh, at the end of today's podcast but a couple of questions what would be your top tip in terms of someone wanting to launch a career in the games industry today? Um, Top tip would be you know, if, if you're passionate about gaming and you've got an idea, then just to do it. Um, so I think Ian mentioned earlier, you know, just just do it. You know, even if you do it and fail, you'll I don't think I don't believe in failure. I think you you learn, you know, it's all learning. So whatever you learn from that, you'll go on to do something better. Um, so, yeah, just start. You've um, sort of echoed each other then because you also said that, didn't you? Well, yes, yeah, because you know, when I started Games Workshop, I had to live in a van for three months with Steve. Most unpleasant, but, you know, you don't see it as hardship at the time. No. Because you are following your heart. And it wasn't hardship, even though you look back and think it must have been. When you determine your own destiny, there's a great sense of, of liberation and, and excitement. And you don't do it for the money. Do what you want to do and hopefully you'll be rewarded at some time in the future. Do you really believe that you shouldn't do it for the money? That's, I didn't. Yeah. So follow your passion. Yeah. Do you think that's true of the gaming industry more than any other creative industry? I think then? the game industry is uh, some fantastic people there. People don't understand the 
you know, the art form of the industry and the cultural significance, the social impact that games are making. And yet people, you know, it's a very understated industry. There are no celebrity like you get in, in film or, or music or, or, or rock and roll. You know, no one knows anyone who makes games. And so the, the industry talks to itself, each other, in a very collaborative way. And it's an amazing industry. That, yeah, what an insight, what a window into this world you've given me and certainly I'm sure people who aren't so aware of the gaming industry listening to this podcast. And Jude, what would you say to entrepreneurs who want to combine profit and purpose? Do you think there are other opportunities specifically in the world of games? Um, yeah, no, I do. I mean, like VR, when I, men- I mentioned VR earlier, I think there's big opportunities in, in VR, but... You know, there's other company, uh, companies in our space looking at um, combining um, advertising with social good or looking at combining microfinance with in-app purchase. So there are ways that you can uh, tap into or, or create profit with purpose businesses within gaming and in, in, you know, in general. I think a lot of startups now are trying to integrate purpose into their businesses and you see a lot of big, big companies change. And a lot of this is driven from consumer buying behavior. Consumers want to buy products and now services and content which um, align to their values and are purpose-driven. So I think we will see some of the bigger companies become obsolete if they don't make the shift quickly. But also, because a lot of startups are putting purpose uh, as, as core of their business, mm. um, I think it's essential now. I don't think we can have a startup today without thinking about purpose and how to make the world a better place. Such food for thought today. Thank you both so very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Enjoyed. I loved it. Keep playing the games. Oh, yeah. my goodness. We'll give you some Hon- tips. Honestly. Thank you again to my guests, Ian Livingston and Jude Owa. And remember, Voom is currently on tour. To find out more about the upcoming dates or to sign up to pitch, you can head to virginmediabusiness.co.uk slash Voom, where you'll also find out about Voom Fibre, the new business broadband network that's over four times faster than most other national providers. The Voom podcast is a Pixie production for Virgin Media Business. We'll be back with more entrepreneurial tales in two weeks' time. But until then, from me, Nikki Bady, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.